Hi, I'm Heather Knight, and this is the Surviving to Thriving podcast. One in four women will experience severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. We're going to discuss the taboo topic of domestic violence and the tools our thrivers have used to succeed in life. We want you to know that you are not alone in this fight. Please keep listening if you or anyone you know has been impacted by domestic violence. Before we get into today's episode, I would like to thank our sponsor, Night Protection Services, for making this podcast possible and all the support they provide our cause. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Surviving to Thriving. Today I have with us Jen Suri Jayanthan and Samantha Macedo. They are from another nonprofit here in Georgia called Partners Against Domestic Violence. And what we're going to be doing is a series uh, with different program directors and people within the organization um, to talk about the different services that they provide to people in the Atlanta area. So, with that being said, Jen is the coordinator of dating violence prevention, and she joined PADV, uh, which is the acronym for it, in August of 2019. She holds a bachelor's degree in neuroscience and behavioral biology from Emory University. Before she came to PADV, she worked on various neuroscientific and legal anthropological research projects, which is crazy, but it's really cool that she what she focused on, which was how substance abuse can interact with trauma on a neurobiological and genetic level, and then also how economic and political shifts affect addiction and trauma rates within the U.S., which is so key right now with the election coming up and the economic shifts um, and how that is going to affect the people that we serve. And so now through all of that, she has become the dating violence prevention coordinator. Samantha is the vice president of prevention and outreach at PADV. She received her bachelor's degree in sociology from Georgia State University. She began working at PADV in 2010, has worked extensively with survivors of intimate partner violence. Um, First, she was a community outreach advocate and then became a teen advocate. And as VP of prevention and outreach, she oversees the legal advocacy, community outreach, and teen dating violence prevention programs. She has also served as the co-chair of Fulton County Family Violence Task Force from 2015 to 2019 and presented in statewide conferences through Georgia Commission on Family Violence. She is also the leader in her Latino community and having worked with several Latino Latin organizations throughout Atlanta and graduated from the Georgia Association of Latino Elected Officials Institute for Leadership in November of 2016. And that's amazing because that's another underserved population in domestic violence a lot of times because of the relationship that they have with law enforcement. So definitely think that that is a key and and much needed um, point of advocacy. So ladies, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Heather. We're so glad to be with you. Yeah, definitely. So, um, Jen, I just want to kind of get into a little bit of your backstory and talk about why did you get into the domestic violence realm going from, obviously, there's a little bit of addiction and trauma base in your undergrad, but what really sparked that interest before you even went to college? It's funny, in a kind of dark way. So I grew up in a household with domestic violence and it took a really long time for my mom to be able to get out of that relationship and by the time i went to college and i moved i'm from new jersey originally so by the time that she got out of it and i got into college it was a really fast turnaround it was all while i was in high school and i came down to georgia i knew that i wanted to study addiction and trauma because i started taking classes that's where my interest was in 
And it's actually funny, my first research gig was at Grady Hospital, and I was working with um, victims of interpersonal violence that had PTSD. And the majority of the people that um, came into our lab were actually DD survivors. And I ended up having that be my population of interest through that experience. And then I went over to Covenant House where I did work for a while and I saw dating violence um, throughout different types of underserved communities. And it just seemed like a natural next step that I really wanted to work in this field and I wanted to make a difference in this field. And I'm really, really fortunate that PEDV has given me the opportunity to do so. Definitely. That's an incredible journey. Um, and I think that it's amazing that even coming from trauma, you were able to kind of use that to go on this path. A lot of people will either continue the cycle or just completely ignore it and say it never happened and move on with their life and continue. So I think it's really powerful that you were able to channel that into the work that you're doing now. Yeah, that's really sweet. Um, and I really, really agree with that point that you brought. Like, you know, a lot of the, like, even with me, like, it's very easy to be like, oh, well, that was a part of my childhood. And now I want to be an adult and have a career and everything. But like, at the end of the day, the strongest types of movements that have emerged in social justice are movements that are oriented around the stories of survivors and the stories of experience. So I'm very lucky to be able to do my job in the capacity that I do. And I really urge other folks to volunteer. Um, if they feel they need so and really just see the incredible work that's being done. Definitely. Sam, what is your journey? What was your story? How did you get into working in this field? So the interesting thing about the domestic violence work is uh, when you look at the stats, one in four women experience some form of uh, intimate partner violence, one in seven men, one in three teenagers. There's really, you know, I think all, all of us at PADV are either connected directly or indirectly with the with the cause, um, and so for me personally, um, I you know I migrated to the United States when I was a, a teenager. I went to high school, and I really didn't find my calling until later, until I started working at nonprofits. So I first started working at another nonprofit here in Atlanta called the Latin American Association, and um, it really spoke to me to to help, uh, as you mentioned, you know, underserved communities. I've been, you know, within my uh, culture and, and my identity, you know, I recognize that I have the privilege of speaking English and having an education. As I was doing that kind of work, it always, you know, I always find myself working with families who were experiencing domestic violence. And at the time, there was a domestic violence advocate at the Latin American Association, or the LAA for short. And I will always go to her and say, like, but what, why is this going on? Like, trying to understand the patterns. And she was very kind and patient, and she will, you know, was educating me on the issue. Um, once an opportunity opened up at PDB, it just, you know, it felt natural. Like, I needed, like, that's where I needed to go. And as you mentioned, I started at our organization at PADBS as a community outreach advocate. And that meant that I was working with, at the time, that position was about working both in the community, doing presentations and education in the community about what is domestic violence, doing support groups, and then working with the victims in the community, as well as the victims in the shelter. Soon, uh, another opportunity opened up at PADB. So I just, I'm very lucky to have been able to progress through different positions at the organization because then I got involved with the prevention work, which is, it, it's, it's one of my passions to try to get ahead. I know that we need to have 
good response systems and now is a, the time in which we need to have better response to domestic violence during this pandemic. But at some point, we have to try to get ahead of the issue and we have to talk about what is a healthy relationship with young people. We have to talk about what are the warning signs of abusive relationships so that um, young people are can can identify these situations earlier in their life. Um, and once you look back, once you get involved in the cause, you know, you look back and yeah, you see it that it was all around you, you know, that you had friends who were experiencing it, that you had relatives who went through it or may still be in it, right? So it's it's the mission of PADB of empowering um, survivors of domestic violence still speaks to me. Very, It's very close to my heart still to this day. Definitely. Um, and teen dating violence is definitely one of the topics that I want to get into. Before we get into that, I do want to circle back to the um, Latin American culture and how you see that that community being affected by domestic violence and what are the some of the resources that they have and can use because I know that there is a huge disconnect between law enforcement and that community. So calling 911 necessarily isn't an option for them. Um, so what are kind of the things that you do as an outreach and prevention coordinator in that community? There's a lot of things. <laughs> we, we, we will probably fail your program just talking about that one question recognizing you know we work on the eliminating barriers kind of model so recognizing that not everybody like you said not everybody uh, has a good relationship with law enforcement may not even speak the language may not understand how you know what kind of rights they have in this country may not understand how the laws of custody and family violence work in this country and what kind of services not just from the government but um, nonprofit organizations like ours are available to them but one of the things we we try to do of course is that you know we're advocates we're not connected to um defects law enforcement or anything like that right. um i mean if we find uh, child abuse situations, of course, we are mandated reporters, so we have to make a report, but we're here to support and empower and um, meet the client where they are in terms of what they want to do. Sometimes, and it's you know, because it's different every time for every case is unique, you know, um, the client may need to, may want to just, you know, buy a ticket and go back to their home country, you know, and that's what we facilitate. The client may, if you know, they wish to, to, to stay in a country and they're undocumented, you know, we still can serve them, but they may qualify for some kind of immigration relief. And so we, you know, facilitate those services and those resources. Now, organization, because of this pandemic, organization has postponed all of our public events, but we're pretty much, you know, in a couple of consulate, uh, consulates at the Mexican consulate. And I believe there's a couple more consulates that we just go almost on a week on a weekly basis to pr talk to the, you know, the, the, the audiences that are waiting for the documents there and provide them information. Um, we go to clinics to provide community education and then we do support groups so that people can come in, you know, if they're feeling ambivalent about leaving the situation because within the Latina culture, there's um, strong family values. And so, of course, right. there may be hesitations about, quote unquote, breaking up the family. And I, I say, quote, because it's, it's, you know, I think there's there's a lot of um, perceptions about keeping the family together, no matter 
how bad it gets. But when you look at how domestic violence impacts the children from the moment they're in the mother's womb, really, then we provide that information. But again, it's still up for the client to make that decision. We respect that decision. So I just mentioned a few things that we do, but there's there's quite a bit of things that we do. Um, you mentioned with law enforcement, um, Now at our agency, we have a police engagement advocate whose entire role is to enhance those relationships, make sure that we're working together with law enforcement, not just providing training, but also liaisoning with, with, you know, when there are some situations in which there there needs to be, you know, someone uh, advocating on behalf of the client and and that they they understand that we're a resource to them and we're here to, you know, uh, if they have a question, if they have a client that they have a concern about, they can reach out to us and we'll, you know, we'll advocate. Awesome. That is amazing. And I think that the liaison between law enforcement and any community is a key because a lot of times that's like the number one thing that like, unless you're, you know, unless you have a good relationship with law enforcement in the beginning, you're not going to want to call 911. So that's a, a really key thing. Okay. Um, something you touched on that I think both of you obviously can answer is what are some things that supporters should or shouldn't do to help a victim? A lot of what we talk about on the show is victim blaming, like, why aren't you leaving? Why aren't you doing this? So what are some things that um, somebody who is a supporter or an advocate can do to help or support somebody that is being abused? I can say a little bit and then maybe Jen can jump in. Um, you know, the movement, if you look at, you know, it's it's a couple of decades old. And so when you look at how it got started, it really got started from with people who who felt that tug that they need they wanted to do something and uh, they set up um, underground networks for safe houses and you know people were coming and volunteering and we've come a long way since then in, in terms of learning um, best practices and one and I'm telling you this because one thing that we still hear about is you know I'll just go to their house and pick them up myself we're gonna pack up things and that's very dangerous thing to do anything that is done has to be done with safety in mind because when a victim is trying to leave an abusive relationship they're at 75 percent greater risk of being hurt or killed along with their relative or friend who's there at that time helping them pack so when we look at the fatalities um, at the end of the year um, sometimes it includes some of those uh, folks who, again, were, were, tra- were just trying to help. Anyone who gets in touch with PADB, um, we safety plan with them. And a safety plan is the steps that this person can take to keep themselves safe while they're trying to um, separate from this abusive relationship. It may be getting a protection order, if that works. We always ask the survivor um, how... <laughs> do you think this will work? You know, how do you think your partner is going to react if you get a protection order? Because if the answer is it's just going to infuriate them, maybe this is not the better route. Right. Because um, in the end, at the end of the day, it's just a piece of paper that it gives exactly. the law, it gives law enforcement more ability to do things if something happens, right. but and it, it doesn't the, stop anybody. No, it starts the paper trail. And I mean, sometimes it does work to de-escalate and stop the violence. But in some other cases, it doesn't work. So we always defer back to the survivor. What do you think it's going to work? Um, and then we uh, we plan around that. We plan around safety plan. If the survivor has suspicion that maybe they're being tracked, we believe them because they know their abuser better than anybody else. Uh, so safety planning is the most important thing. I know uh, 
um, again, as a bystander, as a friend, as a relative, um, you want to help. Um, and one of the better things that you can do is connect them to the local domestic violence agency so that we can do a safety plan with them. So I kind of want to go back to where Sam, Sam started talking about fatality. So a fatality review conducted of Georgia found that of all of the cases where men killed women, over 80% of them were directly linked to IPV. And then over half of those cases that were relationships that started between the ages of, I believe, 13 and 21. Um, so when we're talking about dating violence, especially, especially like teen dating violence in the high schools and the middle schools, we find that like the stat currently, I believe, is one in four, one in four teens, 50% of teens know somebody else that's been physically assaulted in a relationship. And also when we're looking with teens, I think the really unique circumstance there is that like teens know when things are right or wrong, right? Like they have this innate setting, this innate feeling of situations that all of us have as adults. But the thing with teens is that like they might not necessarily have the language yet to be able to effectively communicate if they're being abused, what the abuse is. There's so many studies out there that when they ask teens why they didn't come forward with abuse that was happening in their relationships, usually the answers are something of, I didn't know it was abuse. I didn't know it was wrong. I didn't think it was that big of a deal. So I didn't say anything. It's not like I got assaulted yet, yeah, like things like that. So I really give that um, recommendation that if you do know somebody on the younger side who's either a teenager or even just a young adult, a college student, secondary school, you know, don't ask yes or no questions, ask guiding questions. Again, we want to center the plan around the survivor. So guiding questions, don't be judgmental, don't judge them if they want to stay in the relationship, remind them of their community networks. A lot of the times in domestic violence, dating violence, IPV, we see isolation occur. So a really strong thing you can do, especially with young people, is to remind them of that social network that is available to them. Outside of that, my last point really to recommend is being compassionate. You know, like you might have your opinions on somebody's situation, but at the end of the day, how you feel about something is not relevant to this case. It's about how that person feels and how we can keep them safe. So really having that compassion and that empathy, I think is super important as well. Definitely. And, and getting into the, the teen side of things, um, I know one of the things that we wanted to hit on were those, um, those red flags or those warning signs. I want to talk first about the warning signs in your own relationship. So things that you can look for from your partner and those things, but then also on the outside looking in. If you think that your friend is in a, an abusive relationship, what are some of the things that they should be looking for? In terms of your own relationship, like at PADV, we try to destigmatize that like off the bat, you know someone is an abuser because that's also labeling in its own form. Like a lot of the times, abusers seem like any person on the street. It's just as you go through the relationship, they start to poke at and prod at the boundaries that are established to see how much control that they can have. And they'll just keep pushing that bar. In terms of your own relationship, I usually recommend for folks when you first start dating, look for signs of somebody wanting to get serious too fast, making promises that they can't keep. Um, telling you, starting the paths of isolation, saying that, you know, you're the only one for me, we're the only ones for each other, there's nobody else out there for you in the world. 
Um, furthermore, there's a power and control wheel actually established on a national level that outlines, I believe, seven to eight key behaviors that we see in dating violence relationships, um, similarly also domestic violence. So things can be using social status, minimizing, denying, and blaming, reverting to gender roles, using isolation as a tactic, using manipulation as a tactic, using sex as a tactic to maintain power and control. Um, as for people who are observing friends in their lives and seeing their friends start to get into relationships and then getting worried about that friend, I usually recommend looking out to see if they're not spending as much time in the activities they care about, you know, changes in personality, um, mood swings, a reliance on the partner. A lot of the times with DV victims, we see their agency be taken away from them. So you'll see people ask very common questions like permission to do things. So like, can I put my lunch tray away? Or are you okay if we do this thing? and things like that because these are the types of behaviors that they also see within their relationship. I, I think the only thing I'll, I'll add to that is one of the things that we talk about the most in our education is um, when people hear intimate partner violence or domestic violence they immediately think of physical abuse so looking behind the physical abuse and really thinking about Jen mentioned the power control wheel talks about other behaviors that are considered abusive like um, intimidation isolation all those things are constantly being our behaviors that are constantly being done with the intention of having power and control over the other partner so it's not just about physical abuse so you want to look be beyond those yes bruises it's obviously a warning sign but you want to look beyond that because again there are many other ways in which a partner can be abusive definitely and i think that uh, one of the hot topics or hot words that is being used right now is gaslighting and especially in the teen world when trying to explain domestic violence or um, intimate partner violence to teenagers the big word right now is gaslighting can one or both of you explain what gaslighting is so in terms of gaslighting i mean the technical definition is anything any way an individual puts fault on you when um, confronted with an issue in regards to two people so for example if i went up to my partner and was like I don't feel comfortable or I don't like it when you drink excessively, the response being, oh, I drink a lot because I deserve it and, you know, I do it because I have to deal with you, right? So these, these types of subtle redirects that start to push blame onto the victim and push guilt onto the victim and takes responsibility off the abuser. Informally, I usually like to tell kids when we do our workshops, like, Think about why you come into a conversation, right? If you're coming into a conversation to say one thing and the end product is something different, usually that means there's probably some gaslighting in there, especially when you end up with the blame being on yourself. Um, when you go to approach a healthy conversation with your partner, you want to be able to have these conversations where you're able to be heard, you're able to be respected, and you're able to clearly communicate what each of you feel without any judgment at hand. I think the challenge with gaslighting is, you know, like Jen was talking about, you know, in a, the way to practice, a, you know, healthy relationship habits is if you see, you know, if something doesn't sit well with you, you want to talk to your partner about it and say like, hey, what you did, what you say, that wasn't cool, please don't do it again. And the, ch the challenge with gaslighting is that also this person might be like, I didn't mean it like that, you know, and it starts to kind of chip away that individuals, the, the, the victim in this case, that in their own sense of belief in themselves and how they're perceiving the situation. So I'll give you an example 
one that I recently heard, there was a young woman who went and got some flowers and she had the flowers and her partner put two little bullets uh, right next to the flower arrangement. She was taken back and she didn't, she didn't like that, of course, you know, so she said, why did you put the bullets next to the flowers? And so I think he was trying to make it sound like, oh, it's, you know, like Guns N' Roses. But in her gut feeling, it was telling her that there was a threatening message in there. And then her partner's making it sound like, oh, you know, you're seeing things or you're, <laughs> you're misinterpreting the situation. So that's one of the biggest challenges with, with gaslighting because the, uh, in this case, the, the victim is constantly doubting themselves and, and where they, you know, if they're quite uh, accurately perceiving the situation. Are you, or is Pad V working on men in, uh, and boys and young men in their relationship and uh, not gaslighting and not basically carrying on if they were, if they came from a um, family of violence, not carrying on the cycle or teaching them how to be in a healthy relationship? Because I think um, a lot of times what happens is they don't have anybody in their lives to teach them, hey, this is how you treat women. And this is how, you know, every, this is how a healthy relationship is portrayed. A lot of times we focus on women and saying, hey, this is how you stand up for yourself. And this is how you, you know, make yourself heard in a relationship. But are you guys focusing on the male aspect of that? So just speaking on behalf of the team program, um, and I bet Sam could talk extensively more about the agency as a whole. So I think this is a really important part. I'm glad that we are kind of coming in this direction because it is also very, very important to acknowledge that women are not the sole victims of domestic violence, of intimate partner violence. You know, we do see male survivors, especially of things like stalking and sexual assault as well. Furthermore, when we look at heterosexual IPV versus homosexual relationships IPV, we do find very, very similar rates. And we do see, again, a lot of the same power and control behaviors that we see within the heterosexual relationships within um, the LGBTQ spectrum. In response to that, the way that we frame our workshops are gender neutral. So we do try to focus on healthy relationship building. And hey, while we're talking about healthy relationships, these are some of the things that we see in terms of gaslighting. And I will say, um, and also in terms of abusive relationships. And I will say we have had even young teens come up to us in the past after workshops to say, hey, I didn't even realize this whole time that I was being an abusive partner. You know, and I think there's something really, really powerful in taking that approach than telling kids not to respond to gender norms and then giving them gender norms within our workshop setting. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely work being done there. Furthermore, we are taking a push right now into creating um, curriculum and toolkits for vulnerable teen populations. And one of the populations we are actually working on right now is male survivors not even just within our agency, but there is a giant push within the movement as a whole to really start encompassing male survivors and the LGBTQ community within this giant context of IPV, because we know that there are, that this exists within those communities as well. Jen did a great job in answering that question. <laughs> so the only thing I'll add to that is that I think we've found that there's a lot of individuals out there that can play a role in preventing intimate partner violence and bringing awareness about the issue of intimate partner violence. I think the movement has typically been 
you know, a lot of women involved in it. And to that end, uh, our organization, uh, Partnership Against Domestic Violence, has been working to do more engaging men as allies. We've done a series of engaging, it's called Men's Leadership Breakfast Series. And so we've been bringing in speakers and um, having conversations with uh, men leaders about what it means to them to be involved in in our mission, to and intimate partner violence for survivors and empower them, you know, so uh, because we recognize that everybody has a role to play in this. Definitely. Um, I kind of want to get into a little bit of the um, gender neutral and LGBTQ. How are you guys going about dealing with that? Because in shelters and emergency housing and sustainable housing, a lot of times there are gender restrictions, right? There can't be any men in the women's um, shelters because it would trigger a majority of the population that's in there. So how are you guys dealing with maybe if a lesbian comes in and is been abused by her partner, Mm -hmm. then she has to sit in a room full of women. Like how are you guys dealing with um, that at this time? We've made a decision a couple of years ago to, to admit uh, men in our shelter. I think that's, that's something that for the most part, it's now, I believe, across Georgia that where domestic violence shelters are admitting men. Uh, as far as I haven't heard yet of um, a shelter who ha- who is not. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, yeah, I think most of us are accepting men into our shelters. And I think it was just even like having uh, men in our support groups. We've had support groups. Uh, we well, we try to have a male survivor support group, but it was a challenge yeah. trying to get enough members. Uh, but as it turned out, again, some some male survivors really needed to kind of unpack and make sense of what happened. Ideally, through a support group. I mean, that's probably you know that's one of the best things, best resources aside from counseling, of course. And I know we had a group of a support group of women and, you know, we just decided to ask the women, you know, would you be okay with having a male survivor come in today? And um, if they said, okay, we we were going to do it and we did it. So I think sometimes we forget the resilience and the the capacity. Now, not everybody is there, you know, understanding that part that, you know, some of our survivors are in different parts of their healing journey. But for that instance, it worked just because we asked them, you know? I think Sam hit it on the mark. I will say as a queer person, I'm extremely proud of Partnership Against Domestic Violence. I'm very proud to work for them. Um, Their cultural competency in terms of the LGBTQ community, I will say is definitely up to date. Um, There's a lot of um, empathy and compassion and understanding of the specific barriers, especially that folks in the LGBTQ community, especially trans folks do face when they come forward and try to find solace and safety from intimate partner violence. So we have our underserved communities advocate, Ebony, who is absolutely fantastic. Um, and also within the team program, we are taking pushes to incorporate LGBTQ knowledge within our workshops for all teens to get no matter what, because at the end of the day, you're gonna know people and if you can spend, spread the message within your community, it's also doing this good work. Definitely, I 100% agree. And I'm glad that you guys are 
taking that that first step and being that leading voice in being able to serve that community. I do want to talk about what's going on in our world today uh, with this pandemic and how it is affecting people of domestic violence. Jen, I want to talk a little bit about the research that you did um, at Emory with how economic and political patterns affect addiction and trauma and what you found then that will be helpful to bring today and what is going to eventually happen after um, we're allowed to be released from the, the, the shelter in place. So kind of thinking back to those days. So a lot of the work that I did in regards to political and economic work is just around the topic of feminism, right? So are we truly empowering women within our society? Are we truly decreasing levels of trauma and decreasing levels of um, addiction within our vulnerable communities? Or are we passing policy that kind of allows the perpetration of this? And at the end of the day, if we're talking about COVID-19 and we're talking about being in quarantine, like quarantine and self-isolation is a necessity during a pandemic, but we also have to understand when we're talking about things like family violence and we're talking about things like IPV, child abuse, elder abuse, instances like quarantine can be harmful for these folks. And it usually, and it, not usually, it majorly surrounds itself about community contact, right? So by by isolating, by quarantining, you know, we're going to face situations where people are forced to quarantine with their abusers. Kids have to go home from college into households that might have DV or just other forms of violence within it. Um, public school kids are going home to households. It will, how will this have an effect on how they view relationships and how their developmental strategy goes? My huge recommendation, besides the work that PADV is doing currently, is to really focus on community building. So focus, because at the end of the day, especially in vulnerable communities, like we're known for having our community collective consciousness. So really forming that, really staying in touch with people, doing check-ins with people to make sure that they're doing okay, that they're having an avenue to talk about the stress. I thought a very interesting psychology thing came out and it was talking about how there's this weird cognitive dissonance that we're living in in modern society of being fearful of something that we can't tangibly touch or hold or see, but then also knowing that at the end of the day, by removing our social networks, it'll help us stay safe. And I, as social functioning beings, as people who in our neuroanatomy, we are designed to be social animals, it's created this weird disconnect. So keeping up community contact, I think is super important right now. Definitely. Um, either one can answer what would you, um, I actually did a Facebook live today uh, when we're recording this about domestic violence and, and, what it's like for these women to be, or anybody to be forced to quarantine with their abuser. Um, and one of the questions was, as a supporter, is it more dangerous or detrimental to reach out to somebody that you know for a fact is in an, an abusive relationship and say, hey, are you okay? And you know, bringing that to light, if you know that their contact is being monitored or should that still be their top priority to still check in and make sure that everything's okay? Um, in these situations, we let the survivor decide. If at any point you're able to have a, you know, if the if the survivor is taking a walk in the nature or is able to have, you know, communication, we let them decide what is the best way to reach out. Is there a need for a code word? Um, 
what are the platforms that are safest to communicate, uh, but we'll let the, the survivor guide that process. We're pushing a lot of um, information right now in terms of safety planning. That's part of the safety plan. Uh, so we're pushing a lot of information uh, about safety planning right now through our, you know, we do have a website, www.padb.org, but we also have, we're present on social media. It's, you can find us by PADB Atlanta on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, the teen program has their own Instagram and Twitter platforms. Um, Jen, what are those? <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's PADB Teen Scene, but, you know, check out our sites for more information. But we want the survivor to kind of guide that process because, again, they know their abuser schedule. They know what, how they, they're being monitored or have a feeling about how they're being monitored. So we let, you know, we have a conversation with them and we let them guide that process to let us know what is the best and safest way to communicate with them and how if they, if they ever find themselves in a situation where they need help immediately, like someone, you know, having a code word is important. You know, if I ever say this sentence, you know, or this word, call 911 and send them to my home, you know? Um, so that's part of the safety plan that can be done through our crisis line, which is 24 seven. Our crisis line is still open. Um, our crisis line is 404-873-1766. It is a phone line, it's not a text line. And we serve Fulton and Gwinnett counties in Georgia, but for the statewide number, um, if you're somewhere outside of Fulton and Gwinnett, you can call, for Georgia, you can call 1-800-334-2836 or 1-800-33-HAVEN. That's, those are the numbers that spell out 1-800-33-HAVEN. Mm -hmm. And you'll be connected to the local domestic violence who, again, can help safety plan with this person and just help them. Um, a survivor up to this point has been very resourceful. They've they've come up with plans to they know what works and what doesn't work in keeping themselves safe. However, as the abuse continues, they're running out of plan A. <laughs> they've they've gone through mm -hmm. all their plans. And so a domestic violence advocate can help them explore other options. I think Sam put it perfectly. Mm -hmm. Like okay. at the end of the day we we are available. Our agency is still open. Um, we are accepting clients at a remote capacity. Um, we are still offering things like housing and legal advocacy. Our prevention programs, our outreach programs are working as digital educators. Like we're out there and we're still here to help serve you. So if you do feel like you need advice, if you do need someone to just chat with that is working in DV, like feel free to reach out to our agency or the agency that is connected to your county. Definitely. So for supporters, they should still check in, but make sure that they're following the victim safety plan. Um, and if they don't know the safety plan to kind of ask a little bit about it. Um, mm -hmm. and, then, and then for um, victims, basically just keep, keep doing what's working to keep yourself safe. Is there anything that you guys have that besides, you know, maybe they don't have phone communication, maybe they can't call out. Is there anything that maybe that they can do to keep themselves safe at this time? And, you know, somebody who's listening may be able to get that information to this person. If there's children in, um, in the home and they're at an age where if you do a safety plan with them, they can execute that plan, um, then that's another step that uh, a survivor can do. Safety planning with the kids. Like, if, like having that same code word. If I ever say to you, 
go to your room and we'll go for ice cream later. You know, that's a code word. And that means that you go, you, you go to the neighbors and ask for help, or you take your siblings and you hide in the closet, you know, just having some kind of safety plan and having a conversation. I know it's really rough, but having a conversation again, usually like, um, we've had clients who have safety plan with their kids, uh, who are six years old, you know, um, as long as they understand those are the, the strategies, right. And that we're doing this so that we can be safe. Right. There's physical safety, but there's also emotional safety. So who do you, so safety plan with the kids about emotional safety. Who do you, who can you talk to uh, when you're feeling scared? As I, you know, for me and is there, you know, your auntie or whoever, you know, helping them point out other adults, like that they really care about you. Do you feel comfortable talking to them when you're feeling unsafe, when you're feeling scared? So that's part of the, you know, all part of the safety plan. But if there's kids involved, safety plan with the kids is another, is another um, part of, of that process. If they don't have access to a phone, that's the main thing. Having access to a phone is the main thing. I will say that um, most of the phones, even like all phones, even non-smart phones that don't have service if you can charge them they can call 911 so that's a way to you know if you have a lot of our clients their their phone has been broken by their abuser you know that's another part of keeping them isolated but if you have a phone that you can hide as long as it's charged um even if it doesn't have service, you can call 911. Just wrapping up here, we've got a few questions that we ask and everybody that comes on the show. Um, but I just want to um, ask both of you, is there anything else that you want to talk about that we haven't reached yet um, that you think is really important to share to our listeners? The one thing that I like to give this disclaimer for, it's funny because like I work with teens and college students and <laughs> it's usually the adults that I have to be like, call to action. But um, right. For the adults, I want people to be aware, you know, and conscious of the fact that like you're parenting, you're parenting through this, right? So be an active example for your kids on how to de-escalate problems or tensions, you know, um, bring kids into the conversation more often than not. We embed kids into our planning as an extension, not as an active member. And I think, you know, kids are, they're present, they're responsive, they know what their emotions are. Um, They can identify when a parent is stressed out and that will stress them out if they don't know what's going on. So doing the most that you can to incorporate, especially if you're in an abusive household, like doing the best you can to incorporate the kids into the conversation. Um, And also just if you are a teen and you're experiencing dating violence currently, we do accept young people at our agency. We are pretty blind when it comes to different demographic barriers. Um, If you need help, (coughs) advice, you are more than welcome to contact our hotline or our program, and we'll be right here to provide the help that you need. And I'll add that if you're experiencing abuse from a partner, there is help. A lot of places have closed down. Our domestic violence is still open. (laughs) Our domestic violence agency is still open. Uh, Our crisis line is still open you know, call if you have questions, if you're, even if you're not sure about leaving, but you want to make sense of what's going on, call our crisis line. We're open 24 seven. You don't deserve to be treated this way. 
Okay. And if you know someone who's experiencing it, just telling that person, I'm concerned about you. I'm here to listen to you, to believe you and support you. Tell me how I can support you. Um, that makes a huge difference in, in those, those survivors' lives. And, and then again, if you want to learn more about the patterns and the behaviors, because some, sometimes things don't make sense, and then go to our website and you'll see a lot more information um, about intimate partner violence and uh, how you can support survivors. www.padv.org. Awesome. All right. Um, so the, the first question is, what would the new you say to the old you? Oh, my God. <laughs> um, I'm glad you, you have a savings account. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. Um, what would the new me say to the old me? Yeah. I'm very happy that you found a way to be grounded. Gosh, uh, what wouldn't I tell that that old me? Um, but I think I'll stick with you are loved. I like it. Um, what can you recommend to someone that um, can help them get through a tough time, whether it's meditation or, or anything that helps you that you think would help somebody? I believe that no matter how bad the time is, a good meal and a hot shower can always help you feel a little bit better. I like that one. <laughs> I love that one. Take care of yourself. <laughs> the journey to um, healing is different for everybody. So, um, you know, some things work for some people, some other, you know, and then it doesn't work for others, right? Um, but, you know, don't give up. Try new things. Um, if some people find a lot of empowerment and healing and support groups, others need counseling, you know, and don't be afraid to ask for help um, because that's what, you know, services from our services are there for. Um, all you need to do is ask for help. Definitely. I'm so glad you brought up um, counseling and therapy because it's so, mm -hmm. it's so taboo, but it's so needed even for a healthy person. Um, right. It is so needed. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, is there a book or ebook or quote or podcast that you recommend to listen to um, that gave you strength in um, a tough time? Because there's so many. On a personal level, I, my, my favorite empower, empowering book is Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. <laughs> I love Elizabeth Bennett. Um, <laughs> but on a professional level, um, because I, you know, we, I do the work of prevention, um, the book from Jackson Katz, um, I'll look it up in a second, but he does a lot of, he, he wrote a great book about engaging men uh, and breaking down, unpacking violent masculinity perception. Um, so I loved, um, I loved his book. So I'll, I'll look it up in a second while. Yeah, um, one of my favorite books, I actually just read it within the past year, is called The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Um, it's a 1984 book by a man named Milan Kundera. And I think it's a really great portrayal of just like the fickleness of life. Like, you know, all our TV is super dramatic now. Our music's a little hardcore. Like, if you just want a book about people living in the Wikipedia definition is people living in 1968 Prague Spring period of Czech Czechoslovak history, uh, it's like an easy read. Um, <laughs> 
In terms of work dedicated to like feminism and violence prevention and stuff, I'm a huge fan of the reporter Sonia Shaw. Um, she has several different, very, very fascinating rights. Um, she has one book, um, which name I can't remember, but she has a lot of really great texts that focuses on specifically Asian Americans and, specific, and Pacific Islanders and how feminism kind of has what our contribution to feminism is. And I find it really relatable because a lot of the times we don't see Asian and Pacific Islander voices in the larger context of the feminist movement in America. Um, so I really recommend those two. Definitely. Yeah. Sam, did you find the name of that book? Yes. Um, Jackson Katz, it's called The Match of Paradox, uh, Why Some Men Hurt Women and How All Men Can Help. Awesome. Thank you so mm -hmm. much. And then I know you guys listed your um, social media stuff throughout the podcast, but if you want to reiterate it one more time, how can our listeners reach you guys if they need help or want to hear more about your organization? Right. So the uh, PADB, um, the agency-wide uh, platforms are Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can find us as PADB Atlanta. Uh, and then our website, of course, is www.padb.org. Um, and our crisis line, which again is open 24-7, even now, is 873-1766. Awesome. And then that um, Georgia hotline is 1-800-33-HAVEN. Correct. Um, one thing we didn't share is there is a teen dating violence text line. And actually, teens can text questions not just about dating violence, but about relationships in general. Yeah. And that's 706. That's a, a Georgia uh, text line. 706-765-8019. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for coming on the show and dropping some wisdom and some much needed knowledge about the crisis that we have going on right now. It was my absolute pleasure, Heather. Thank you so much. Yeah, this was a ton of fun. Thank you. <laughs> if you or anyone you know has been victimized by domestic violence, please reach out to us for resources and ways our organization can help you. You can find us on social media at 2 Thriving ATL. T-O Thriving ATL or online at twothriving.org.